Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings at Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. Lots of cool pictures. But more importantly, you should follow because I give a lot of stuff away. Books, CDs, tickets. Now things are opening up again. You might be able to get a little gift card to a restaurant. The other day I did something to the Cheesecake Factory. You never know, so you want to follow. Also, you can hear the show now, not only here at Blog Talk Radio, but iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. So if you're listening to music, you can switch over and listen to your favorite podcast, or at least I hope it's your favorite podcast. Um, Well, today I have a guest, a returning guest, a very inquisitive returning guest. Even from a young age, he was very inquisitive, um, you know, writing dissertations and whatnot um, about riots. Um, He came on before about a different book, and today, though, he has a new book. He's been very busy, actually. He had a book earlier this year, and now he has this book coming out, The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. This is Ellis Coates. He was a journalist. Um, he's been on lots of TV shows, uh, major publications, uh, Today, Time, Today Show, Nightline, Dateline, ABC, NBC, so on and so forth. And I'm so fortunate to have him here again. Ellis Coates, good morning. Oh, good morning, Joe. Joy, and I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for coming back on. Um, like I was telling you, I, I don't always listen to my previous uh, interviews, but in listening to our previous interview, uh, I was reminded about your connection with Gwendolyn Brooks. Do you want to tell the audience um, just about that? Because these are new people, because our interview was like eight, nine years ago. Tell sure. me about your connection to Gwendolyn Brooks. Well, I'm a Chicago native, even though I live in New York City now. And Gwendolyn Brooks was, in effect, one of my early and very important mentors. I mean, I was in high school when I wrote um, this long dissertation, for reasons I won't even go into, I, on the uh, on the riots, on riots in, in American society, and my and gave it to my teacher, and it was it ended up being like a hundred and twenty page manuscript or something like that, and and my teacher at the time, um, 
looked at it and she came back to me after after reading it and said, look, Ellis, I'm going to give you an A in this course, but I'm not really capable of judging material like this. You need to send this to a professional. And I'm going, a professional, what what do you mean send it to a professional? I'm a kid. I'm, I'm growing up in the housing project of Chicago. I'm going, I don't know any professionals who can evaluate this. And she said, well, have you heard of Gwendolyn Brooks? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, she's like the poet laureate of Illinois, right? She said, yes. And she was this Pulitzer Prize-winning poet who was, who was a, a very a giant figure, actually, in, in literature and in, and in black literature. And she says to me, well, you should send it to her. And I said, well, where is she? And she ended up, she taught at a, at a college uh, right outside, or, or actually I think it was right inside Chicago. And so I sent this thing to Gwendolyn Brooks and um, didn't hear anything from her, which I didn't think was surprising because I figured – you know, poet laureates are busy people, so if I don't hear from her, that's just that. But she actually called uh, after a month or so later, and she invited me to come meet her. And she had written across my manuscript, you know, one day you will be a great writer, uh, which just hit me like, my God, you know, this is like this great woman telling you you're supposed to be a writer. It never occurred to me that that's what I should even think about doing uh, for for a living, and she invited me to join her writers group, and and we stayed in touch, you know, for a long time. And she became a very important figure in my life, and she was a a very important figure in, in a lot of um, young writers' lives, and particularly black writers, whom she helped to to guide and to mentor, as she did with me. That's like an amazing story. Such a mentor. Did you have any other mentors after that that you you think had really an impact or changed the way you wrote or researched? For your books uh, sh- and things? Sure, I did. I mean, I had, um, um, even in those early days when I was still a teenager, I mean, there was a guy at the time who was a, a fairly well-known novelist named Ron Fair. He wrote a book uh, called, um, well, it became a movie called Cornbread Earl and Me. It was a movie, the book he wrote was called Hawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became a very a very close mentor of, of mine. You know, at the time, Hoyt Fuller uh, was the editor of Black World. He became a mentor to me. And, and my first newspaper job, um, I was became, at the age of 19, a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. But that only happened um, because Jim Hoke, who was the editor of the paper, uh, took a, a strong personal interest in me and decided, him, him he and, and Ralph Otwell, who was the managing editor of the paper, decided that they were going to take this, you know, this young black kid and train him to be a journalist and make sure that that uh, he got a good start to his career. So I was fortunate in that way. I mean, I had a number of people uh, who were older and became interested in me and helped me make it to the point where I could become a uh, professional and successful writer. Now, what did they teach you about free speech when you were, I mean, did they tell you you could write anything, say anything, or what did they talk to you about quotes and having, you know, um, I don't know what you say, the, the the secret person that told you something but you can't tell their name and things like that. What did they – I can't think of the name of that right now, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, what did they teach you about that and, and, and in terms of, like, if the police stop you, you know, well, can you the, give up? That, I, I don't think that was so much the function of someone like Gwendolyn Brooks. She taught me more about you know, the craft of writing and, and how you approach it. But um, the – the, I guess the good thing about starting in journalism is that we you, know, you immediately get a lesson in free speech. 
uh, when you when you write for a major newspaper because you don't you can't libel people. So you have lawyers who who basically look at, at stories that might end up being questionable, and you have to meet certain standards when you do that. You you, you get imbued with a whole concept of fairness. And with you know how you have a responsibility as a journalist to not just tell one side of the story, but to tell the other sides of the story. And for a kid who had never seriously thought about these kinds of issues, you know, you, it was a, a great introduction and a great um, uh, sort of um, being dipped into this subject of uh, free speech and, and the First Amendment that I had never had any real reason to give any thought to. And, and of course, there was a huge decision um, called you know, New York v. Sullivan, which was a which was one of the fundamental free speech decisions, uh, which made it, uh, which was just the one that looked at the whole question of whether you can libel a person or, or, and how you can libel a public person. And it actually stemmed from a uh, situation in Alabama where some black ministers had, Taken out a uh, an ad in the New York Times. They were associated with them with Dr. Martin Luther King, and they were trying to get support for the movement and support for Martin Luther King and, and a bunch of uh, and and in doing so, they recounted what had happened with the movement, how King had been arrested so many times, how his home had been bombed, how um, students had been arrested for trying to uh, eat at a lunch counter, etc. And the Alabama public officials decided that they had been libeled by this, and mm. they actually went to court. They sued uh, these ministers. They sued the New York Times because they also didn't like the fact that the Yankee press, as they thought of it, was you know, covering them in a negative way. Uh, and they got judgments uh, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and which, the, which certainly the ministers couldn't afford, and which threatened to shut down the press. And it went to the Supreme Court, and, and the Supreme Court threw out those judgments and basically said... Uh, as a public official, you have a, a pretty high bar to establish you've been libeled. And that became a fundamental uh, part of our free protections in this country, and it certainly affects the protection for uh, freedom of the press. And you, and those are the kinds of things that you learn as a young journalist, as, as, as did I. You have um, this wonderful book. It really makes you think, as I said earlier when we were talking before the show started, things that I would not have even thought free speech would be connected to. Um, but in the beginning, um, you talk about the beginnings of, you know, how it came about this free speech um, law, and it's not what we think it is today. Um, one of the interesting stories, kind of silly, but just crazy to think that this is what people were doing. There was a story about a guy, he was wrapping um, his uh, luggage in newspaper, right. Talk to them a little bit about that story. I thought that was a really interesting story, and and just how far people would go, even though we had free speech. This is after the law, you know. Well, well, but, it's, you know. it's interesting because when the first of all, the First Amendment was not part of the actual Constitution, which was the the, the Constitutional Convention in 1787 had a, a big debate over whether there should even be a Bill of Rights, whether they whether and, and they, whether they needed something to protect them from the government that they were creating, because their whole frame of mind was, you know, this is going to be our government. We don't need protection from ourselves, and what we need protection from, you know, is is England, uh, which they would sever their relationship with, or at least their their relationship as colonies with. 
so uh, so the First Amendment came later, and it came a few, it came a few years later in 1791, when the um, Bill of Rights and the um, free speech, which is part of the, which is part of the First Amendment, which also includes freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, you know, freedom of the press, and freedom to petition the government, and that was that was part of the of the First Amendment that passed a little bit later. Uh, but at the time, and this is, uh, I think, kind of interesting because we tend to have a very different idea now, but at the time, the First Amendment was considered a, um, a prohibition on the ability of the federal government to regulate your speech and to prevent you from from saying uh, what you wanted to say or from printing what you wanted to say. It didn't apply to the states. And so you had states at that time who could pass any kind of prohibitions on speech that they wanted to. And one of the things that most of the southern states did was to prohibit literature or uh, about um, emancipation or, 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 or abolition, as they called it. You know, so if you were anti-slavery and you wanted to distribute literature, in most of the southern states you could be arrested, you could be fined, you could be flogged, you know, which is literally beaten, and you could be uh, sent to prison. And uh, the story you're talking about is this a fellow who was a an abolitionist and actually raising money for school. And he went and he went through, he was traveling through the South, and he happened to have some of this abolitionist literature in his luggage. It was found, and he was literally flogged and run out of town um, for supposedly advocating the end into slavery. Uh, but that was a whole different era, and the the um, part of the uh, First Amendment that, or, or I should put it this way, the the idea that the First Amendment should actually apply to states didn't actually take hold until the 1920s. I mean, there was a, a famous case in 1925, and the case was called Gitlow v. New York, and this and that was uh, aimed at a couple of guys who had printed what they called a communist manifesto, and they were arrested and convicted of violating a state law um, against um, against sedition, basically. And the conviction was upheld, and they appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court with the help of the ACLU. And the Supreme Court also upheld the convention, but it also declared at that time something that was not at all established law. Um, they declared that the First Amendment uh, did apply to the states, and that the states also were prohibited against limiting free speech, But which gets to, a, I guess, a larger question, which is that even when you have the First Amendment protection, even when you have the, uh, the constitutional guarantee of free speech, uh, free speech has never been totally unregulated speech. And, and no, not at all. Right, exactly. And whether it's at the national level or at the state level, um, the state is permitted to pass laws that do infringe on certain parts of speech. And one example, of course, is uh, you can't have child pornography, and, you, and that's you know just considered speech, a form of speech which is so objectionable to society that it's not allowed. But there are also other there are there are also other exceptions to free speech, and they have always and always have been. Well, that's something that you talk about in the book. Is like the individual and the group, you talk about the state and the federal. Right. And with the individual and the group, what line, where do we stop? 
And that's one of the things you bring up. And and my question is, yeah, where do we start? Because um, right before this book, you wrote a, a history of the ACLU. Right. And um, you bring up the ACLU in this book and, and, and stories I, you know, I wasn't even aware of. But, you know, one of the interesting things is they um, were supporting a, a Nazi group to march in this Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> you know? And... Well, that was a book called Democracy, um, if we can keep it. And one of the um, more important incidents in the ACLU history uh, was the incident that you referred to, which is which is in 1978 in a city, a suburb of Chicago called Skokie, which happened to have a lot of Holocaust survivors at the time living in that community. And the uh, the ACLU, which had always defended free speech independent of the content of the speech, which is to say that even people who were members of the KKK, they would defend, and they would also defend civil rights workers, et cetera. And so when this case came up, uh, there was a Nazi group um, who, who wanted to have a march uh, through Skokie. And Skokie, the community, said, no way you can do that. Uh, that That's just insane. This, these are, you have Holocaust survivors there. Right. And they passed a, an ordinance or a series of ordinances limiting the ability of a group like the uh, Nazi group to um, march through Skokie. And the group um, went to the ACLU and said, well, you defend us. And for the ACLU, it was, it was um, not a big decision because they typically defended such groups. Well, it ended up becoming a huge deal. They did defend the group. Um, they they did get the law st- struck down, but they f- suffered these huge reprisals, and people were threatening to yank their membership. You had uh, all kinds of, of protests against them, and the way that they maneuvered out of that was interesting. The 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 lead attorney who defended the Nazi group was a Jewish attorney. His name was David Goldberger. And they had uh, Mr. Goldberger write a letter where he explained that he said, look, you know, I don't like these people any more than you do. I I, I hate Nazis. He said, but the reason we are defending them in court is that, you know, you also have marchers in Alabama and in Selma and in the the civil rights movement. And if we allow ordinances like this, which prohibit the Nazis from marching um, in Skokie, and then we have to also allow these laws in places like Selma that will prevent civil rights people from marching. And that became the most successful fundraising letter that the ACLU had uh, put together and, and sort of turned that situation around. Uh, but interestingly, I mean, that, that debate, that issue came up again a couple of years ago in the, the Charlottesville where uh, there was a group called um, uh, Unite the Right, uh, which came, which was a, which was another white supremacist group, uh, yep. which wanted mm-hmm. to uh, have a rally uh, in Charlottesville, basically a rally because they were opposing the taking down of a statue of Robert E. Lee, the renaming of uh, of, of Lee Park um, to the Emancipation Park. And the ACLU, again, ended up defending this group and ended up resulting in a tragedy, which is to say that um, a young woman uh, named Heather Heyer was was killed when a um, guy who was a Nazi supporter, he he, he was a young man who personally idolized uh, Adolf Hitler, um, decided to drive a car into a group of the anti-white extremist protesters 
So he killed this woman and injured um, 30 some odd other people. Uh, you also had two cops who died in that situation because they were they were helicopter policemen who were monitoring the um, protest and uh, their I mean, their helicopter crash. And the interesting thing is that the march itself never took place because there was so much violence surrounding it. Right, it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that they shut it down. The couple of cops shut it down before they could actually hold the march. But that was another instance where the where the ACLU was very much involved in this issue of defending a pretty uh, objectionable group. And and the question that they had to face again as an organization is to what extent uh, could a, a civil liberties group and 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 also a civil rights group be involved in defending people who are articulating hate speech. And to some extent, I think that issue is still unresolved. I mean, they're still debating that internally as to um, what you do when you're confronted with that situation. Um, Yeah, I think it is a definitely issue. You give several examples in your book. Now, you also um, had an opportunity um, to talk with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, Unfortunately, as we know, she she passed away. And um, in this other chapter, the second chapter, The Root of All Evil, you discuss money. And, you know, I was like, what? I'm trying to, like, read the, you know, okay, what's, why is this connected to free speech? Um, but why don't you tell the audience, you know, uh, well, one of the things that Ruth um, Justice Ginsburg said that she thought um, the first thing, one of the dangers to democracy was money. But talk to the audience a little bit about this connection of money and how it affects free speech and sure, politics. I mean- yeah, I mean, and, and and she was, you know, certainly a giant in in terms of uh, judicial figures, uh, and and in terms of just figures in general. And given her contributions, you know, to um, freedom of speech, to 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 the rights of women, um, and to civil liberties and civil rights in general. I mean, she was she was a giant. But one of the the issues that we ended up discussing was things that do infringe on free speech. And this is in the context of, a, of another Supreme Court decision that, you know, that was um, came down in 2010 uh, called Citizens United, which essentially said that corporations had the same rights that you and I as individuals have when it, came, when it comes to speech, that they want to spend billions of dollars supporting candidates, if they, if they want to spend billions of dollars uh, articulating and advocating on behalf of political views and, and candidates, you know, they have as much right as you and I have as individuals. But what the and the uh, the, the dissents, uh, one by um, Ginsburg and and the other by Justice Stevens, basically said, you know, that's absurd. I, you know, the policy, uh, corporations are not people. They they yeah. vote. Um, they, you know, they don't die, and, and it's not even clear in some instances who they're even speaking for. But the larger point is that if you grant these kinds of institutions the same rights to speech as they, as you and I have, it's not really granting them the same right. It's granting them a larger right because you and I personally, well, maybe you do, but I don't, you know, don't have billions of dollars to spend, you know, um, yeah. articulating speech. So, in so in effect. You know, their right to speech trumps our right to speech, and even though um, theoretically we're both on an evil, on, a, on an, an even playing field, in reality we're not. Uh, and I think that one of the issues that we're wrestling with now as a society, when when so much um, of the ability to speech revolves around money, 
And there's and there are any number of studies, and I won't bore you with my citing them, but any number of studies which basically show that politicians are much more responsive to people who give them money than to people who just have a vote to offer them. Of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, hello. And, and, that, and that totally distorts the political process because the whole point of free speech, going back to when we we decided to be serious about it, is that you want to have a more perfect union. You want to have a more perfect society. You want to have the ability to have robust uh, debate within society because only through that debate do you arrive at the uh, at the truth at a at a better ver- at a better version of reality at, at at the testing of bad ideas against good ideas, and that whole notion is a little bit naive um, today, uh, when you have so much money and and frankly propaganda, which confuses the whole concept of getting to the truth uh, in political speech. Well, now that you talk about that, let's let's talk about this this propaganda. Tell the audience about post-truth, because that's an interesting um, sure. comment there. Yeah. I mean, there, there there was never a time when politicians didn't lie. I mean, that's just obvious. Um, but I think what, happened, what has happened over the last uh, couple of decades is the line has gone to a totally, a totally new level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and, and, I'm, and, I, and I sort of marked the beginning with the political race of 2004, and that was the one where John Kerry was running against George W. Bush. And a bunch of Republican operatives decided that they needed to take um, John Kerry down a peg or two. Now, Kerry was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He ultimately became against the Vietnam War, and actually when he came back, he spoke when he came back from Vietnam, he spoke against the war. But while he was in Vietnam, he was essentially a war hero. I mean, he he got um, the Bronze Star. You know, he, uh, he he rescued many of the members of his platoons. He was part of a of a, of a um, brigade, I guess uh, if that's the correct word. But people who were in this uh, swift boat um, contingent, and they took you know, which which is just what it sounded like. I mean, they he was a boat captain going up and down uh, the the river in Vietnam. And a bunch of Republican operatives decided they don't they don't want they didn't want to run against a war hero, so they would make him into something totally different. And they got a, a, a handful of veterans to uh, say in a documentary that he was a coward, that he hadn't done anything that he was credited with doing, uh, mm. that 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 he was just the opposite of a war hero, that he was close to a traitor. Uh, and they put that in uh, in political ads. They they put it. Uh, they published this story in a book, um, and they they totally changed the public perception, at least some of the public perception, of him being this heroic figure to him being something very different from that. And then they even have a term for it now. They but they could only do that with that money. I mean, that goes back to the money, the ability to well, get people to make books, to put advertisements out. I mean. Sure. And, and the more people that see, yeah, so that yeah, goes yeah. back to money. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then, of course, they were they were advocating on behalf of a presidential candidate, so which is George W. Bush, even though they weren't officially connected to that campaign. And so they had a lot of money to play with um, because there were a lot of Republicans who wanted to see the the, uh, the Democrat defeated. But I think the the huge insight from 2004 was you didn't have to bother with the truth. You could you could take absolute total lies and get enough people to believe them 
yeah. that you could have an impact on the political process. And then so that takes you to now when you have someone uh, like Donald Trump, whose whole career, <clears throat> excuse me, his whole political career is based on lies. I mean, the, it, his, his, his political career began with this um, birtherism um, nonsense about Barack Obama not being an American. Mm, I was just about to – he beat me to the – yeah. I was just about to talk about that. Yeah, like he brought that up, and people yeah. to this day still believe that. Well, for years, this was his his big issue, uh, that Barack Obama was not really a citizen, that he was somebody from Kenya who was somehow uh, surreptitiously coming to the United States, apparently, and tricked his way into um, the presidency. Uh, <laughs> it was it was absurd, you know, um, but he got uh, majority Republicans at one point to believe this nonsense and it gave, and it gave him, and you know, he's going on about how he's sending investigators to Hawaii to investigate this so-called birth certificate. Well, he wasn't sending anybody to Hawaii. He wasn't sending anybody anywhere. You know, he was just making up lies. Uh, and, you know, I and, was worried about Kamala, about, you know, her situation. Yeah. Were well, they going to go there with her and everything, you know? Well, they've already gone there. I mean, they, yeah. it, it's, it's not supportable because I think now that Democrats have realized they have to fight back against this nonsense, uh, but they, they did start exactly the same thing with Kamala Harris, um, and then the Democrats have pushed back against it. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But the but what they, or at least it won't go anywhere with with most people, there will always be a, a couple of totally non-critical thinking people who accept this, this nonsense, which is, which is what the people who propagate it uh, depend on. And so we, we now have this era in politics uh, where truth absolutely almost does not matter anymore because as long as you have um, a large enough megaphone and as long as you have an interesting enough story, uh, even if it's totally fictitious, uh, it gets people follow you. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that brings up you know the I mean the other aspect of that which is that we now have an internet culture. Uh, yeah. And, and we know for a fact uh, that outrageous lies get a lot more traction on the internet than the truth. Well, and you bring so, up, um, you know, Facebook and, and yeah. Zuckerberg and um, his support of the right and, you know, did he have the right to um, post the ads that were false ads and things of that nature. Um, but one of the other things you also speak about, and this is in uh, Chapter 4, you talk about the silencing of science. And that's what's happening now, I believe, with this epidemic, uh, a pandemic um, that, you know, that they're trying to um, put what was his name? Couchy? Couchy? I'm not saying it right. The, the, his, his science then about, you know, wearing masks, and people are not wearing masks. And um, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, it's, I, taken, I don't, it's, taken, it's taken to a new level, this whole idea of making up a narrative and getting its, uh, its acceptance. Uh, but just, but just, and, 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 the, and that's been the hallmark of, um, of the Trump presidency, who... Um, I think the new, the Washington Post, which tries to keep track of of the lies and the falsehoods, now has them at, at over twenty thousand. You know, and so you have an, an entire party at this point that's invested in that, and that's extremely dangerous for uh, for our democracy when you when you have truth that no longer matters, and and so you, even though truth is not on the ballot. In a way, it is. I mean, the, the, the right to free speech is in a larger sense about the right to truth. Um, and we have seen that violated at every level. We talked earlier about Ginsburg passing and what would that mean for America. I mean, 
I was like, damn, I, I was really hoping she could last till like she was a hundred. Sure. <laughs> I just, you know, that's my mom sent me the article. She, she, she sent me the, the message and I was just like, like my, my, the breath was like deflated out of me because there's so many things that a person in that position, put in that position can do to the country. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, you know, you even talk about, um, in, in one of the chapters, you talk about um, the tyranny, uh, flirting with tyranny. And, you know, in, in 1917, 1918, the Espionage Act, the Condition Act, even now we're talking about TikTok. We mentioned TikTok. Right. And um, I don't know if people know, but, you know, President Trump is trying to get rid of that company if it's not owned by, majority owned by an American. But that platform allows people a lot of free speech. Yeah, I mean, we have a, and, and you, you invoke the, you know, the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act, of, which is actually an amendment to the Espionage Act, which was passed in, in 1918. You know, so, so we have we have a long history of um, administrations deciding that there is certain there are certain types of speech they don't want to allow. Um, going back to that era, that's that's the World War One era, and that was the Wilson administration. They and they basically criminalized the very idea of speaking out against the um, against the war. But that, but and, and actually even goes back further than that. It goes back to the original Alien and Sedition Acts in the late 1700s, uh, which um, which were passed in what 1798, um, where they made it illegal to speak out against the Federalists. So and so so now you have this this modern incarnation where there's not even a war. Um, and and in fact, part of um, of uh, the hostility that Trump has to TikTok, you know, goes back to it's not even it's not clear what is truth or a rumor, but there were a lot of young uh, people who used TikTok uh, to when he had his big rally in Tulsa, um, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to basically register for his rally and then not show up as a way of fooling the Republicans into thinking. That they were going to have a, a much larger showing than than they did, and then they boasted about what they had done later. And Trump got enraged at TikTok, you know, mm. um, and so then he decides, well, okay, he's president, he can go after TikTok, particularly since it's uh, owned, since, since it's foreign owned, and he's decided to attack it. Uh, and and because he's not doing it as a as, an, as a speech issue. But as a regulation of foreign commerce issue, he may actually be successful with that. Well, that's where he's shrewd. See, he always tries to do things that within the legal boundaries. But as you brought up, perhaps it's in reference to the thing they did with his, um, you know, campaign uh, and coming to the speak, speaking. Um, there's another um, app you talk about in the book, though. I brought up TikTok. That was, you know, me. But mm-hmm. Yik Yak app. You talk about that, and that's young people. Talk about the Yik Yak app. We're kind of running out of time, but just tell them about what, sure. that, what that's about. Well, it, was that similar, it was a similar issue in that it was another social media uh, uh, app, and it allowed young people, and it, was, and it became very popular with young people, and particularly young people on campuses, and it allowed them to anonymously criticize other people and to uh, make comments which some folks found very hurtful. And so a number of, of organizations on various campuses uh, basically, asked that this yeah, that this app be um, disallowed, that, that be that not be allowed uh, on their on their campuses, and it became a huge debate about whether this was be it would be an infringement on free speech 
to go along with that, and most colleges resisted that. It, that that issue kind of ended up going away, not because it was resolved, but because UCAC went out of business. You know, they their business model for reasons that are not even worth going into. Well, you know, this, you know, they decided it was not supportable. So that issue, so so and so that particular uh, fight sort of faded away on its own. But the issue is still yeah. with it, and the issue is, you know, to what extent. Uh, Speech on the internet uh, can be limited. Who's supposed to limit it? How can it be limited? And you, and you mentioned earlier the whole question of Zuckerberg and Facebook, uh, and that issue really revolves around uh, the issue of political speech again. Because what Zuckerberg has decided is that Facebook has no real responsibility to regulate total lies uh, if they are articulated by politicians in the context of political ads. So that gives. Um, someone who lies consistently licensed to lie on his website, um, there are a lot of people who say, wait a minute, that's a, uh, that's a bridge too far. And that's, and that's still, and, 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 and what I found troubling about Zuckerberg's defense of that was that he used the, um, the, the decision I referenced earlier, the Sullivan decision, which is from the Civil Rights era, as a justification for that standpoint. He says, well, I don't want to infringe on on uh, free speech, and, and yeah. that was the same way that that the Supreme Court refused to let these Alabama officials to you know infringe on free speech. And they say, hey, wait a minute, these aren't comparable. You know, here you had a bunch of um, public officials who were in support of um, Southern apartheid, who wanted to crush a civil rights movement, and they used the libel law as a way to do that. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to let that happen. That's not what's happening here. You know, you 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 have something totally opposite to that happening here. Um, whatever, however you you want to uh, think of. Spin it, yeah. Yeah, he, oh. he's not, he, he's no Martin Luther King. You know, he's not he's not leading the civil rights movement, and 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 he's and he's not combat and he's not facing the power of the state trying to stop him from doing that. In fact, he is the state. He is the power of the state. And he's using that power you know, to spread lies and disinformation. Um, and, and so anyway, I, I, just, I just found it ironical and offensive that Zuckerberg would try to use that as a, as a defense for a position that allows um, him to allow uh, you know, lies from political oh, figures. Yeah. Well, totally well, I, I just want to say it's been a pleasure. We we are we ran out of time. actually went over, but I knew it was going to go over just because you always have so much to talk about of, of interest. But I want to encourage people to um, go and and read your book. I'll be giving away some copies. Please follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook Saturday mornings with Joy Keys and on Instagram. Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also check out Ellis Coast at elliscoast.com. The book we didn't even like. We just touched on the surface, really, right now, because there's so much in the book uh, that he goes into um, very interesting stories, histories, um, context. It, it's all there. He's, he's a wonderful researcher. I remember your last book, I, when I was listening to the interview, you, you got surveys from like 500 people. Does his homework. That's all, I was, that's all what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, thank uh, you, thank you. And it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you this morning. It has been wonderful speaking with you. I hope you have a great weekend. And um, I don't know what to say if you pray pray about this Supreme Court situation. <laughs> okay, I will okay. talk to you later. You take good care. 
Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, I'll be giving some copies of his book away, so you want to follow me on social media, find out how you can win. Um, also, if you had called earlier, we did um, reschedule the Billy Childs interview. It's going to be tomorrow at 12 p.m. Um, he did call and apologize uh, profusely, so please, if you wanted to listen to um, Billy Childs, the musician, uh, we're going to talk tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern. Uh, to talk about his new album, Acceptance. Um, Again, thank you for your support, and you guys have a great weekend. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.